Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. With the appearance of the Kieran Dry gigs from 1988 appearing on YouTube earlier this year, a long-lost footnote in Billy Joel history has finally resurfaced. This one-off gig in Japan finds Billy performing with just one member of his longtime touring band. They're joined by players who performed on other tours in the 80s, musicians who would go on to tour with Billy in support of Stormfront, and a few guests who would only share the stage this one time. That combination of musicians makes Billy's only major concert appearance from this year a unique and intriguing listen. The arrangements stay close to the bridge tour and Russia shows, but they streamline in places and stray in others. And the discerning ear may even notice a mistake or two from the temporary ensemble. Join us as we dig deep into Billy's show at the Tokyo Dome in Japan on July 24th, 1988. What a fortuitous happenstance that this bootleg just surfaced on YouTube. It's a show we only discovered ourselves uh, earlier this year when we were doing our episode on 1988, where this serious... Last year. Oh my God, it was last year. (sighs) It was actually probably (laughs) almost a year ago. I'm getting so old, man. Anyway, as we were doing our um, show on 1988, we came across this weird thing on Setlist FM was Kieran Dry Gigs, which is... 
a really weird name. And it was over in Japan and we couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And then we found out it was a one-off festival. Uh, the Hooters were there. Boz Skaggs was there. Art Garfunkel was there. A couple other people. And it was like a big, like, uh, how would you put it? Like a corporate conglomerate sort of thing. Yeah. And it was the Kieran Dry or the Curran Dry, however it said. That that was the, uh, the, the, the name of the alcohol, the, uh, the drink, the alcohol company that was sponsoring it. Yeah. So it wasn't a dry gig by any stretch. Right. I'm sure they were. This was the sponsor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's an unusual show for Billy in general. But what really made this one an outlier is the band that's on it. So this is clearly uh, after Russell was let go from the band. Doug was let go from the band. And on top of that, he didn't take Mark Rivera with him. He just used uh, Eric Bazilian from the Hooters, who happened to be there anyway. Yeah, this is so fascinating. As you mentioned, Doug and Russell were let go at the end of the bridge tour in 87, after Australia, I believe. Mark Rivera wasn't involved in the Stormfront album. He did the tour and everything after that, but Mark went on to work on Peter Gabriel's record, things like that, and he was working with some other artists, so he wasn't working with Billy in early 89 until he was ready to go on the road. So Mark wasn't there. And then you also had David Brown, who did most of the bridge tour, but due to some financial disagreements, sat out, Russia and London, and I believe Australia as well, where they had Kevin Dukes fill in on guitar. So this show here was the only show of 1988. And this was during one of the biggest transitions of the Billy Joel band ever. So as a result, you had quite a unique one-off lineup, just like the show, where you had some of the old, some of the new, and some temporary members just for this night. And we'll get into all that in a moment. But uh, first, we do have a couple letters and comments we want to go through. We got some nice responses to our uh, episode ranking all of Billy Joel's album covers. It's kind of funny. This episode came out in January. and We recorded this in August and just sat on it for a while because it wasn't necessarily timely. It was amusing going back and listening to that episode as we were putting the finishing touches on it in January, us talking about crazy heat wave that week and us being really warm (laughs) things like that (laughs) yeah i forgot how hot of a summer it was but it was funny listening to that you know after we had held this episode now i'm up on the third floor of my house in a sweatshirt i'm sweating just thinking about being up here uh recording that episode but at any rate rob Niebel, tales from the corners podcast says hi guys you recorded another great show i'll give you my top four lp cover choices When growing up, my sister was the one who bought the albums in the family. I remember when she brought home The Stranger. That iconic cover drew me in from the moment I saw the LP. I assumed that Billy was Italian since he seemed to be dining on that type of cuisine on the back cover. And oh yeah, he wrote a song about an Italian restaurant. Also, he is posing with a few Italian guys in the photos. The whole boxing thing puzzled me. I was like, why would a guy who plays piano mess up his hands with boxing? Far later on, I never understood why he got on motorcycles, especially after seeing that his hand was bandaged from a bike accident at the Live from Long Island concert. To me, The Stranger is my Sgt. Peppers, and years later, when I started to see him live, that band was my Beatles. After The Stranger, I ranked Glass Houses as the next best cover. Again, that cover drew me in, and I constantly played that LP, totally loving all for Lena. 52nd Street comes in third for me, but yes, guys, why was Billy posing with a trumpet? confusing to someone who saw the LP for the first time like me. I stumbled on Songs in the Attic a few years later since my sister never bought that one. My neighbor Lee liked to buy live albums, including ones by Kiss. Songs in the Attic was in his collection. I have always loved the concept and, of course, the artwork. Great to hear from you, Robert. Always good to hear from you, for sure. Yeah, I think the story behind the trumpet is just that he he always needs something to do with his hands, so he just picked up a trumpet. There's a couple short video vignettes of Billy talking about every album when the Complete Albums Collection came out in 2011, and he actually alludes to the same thing. He said he just always feels awkward with his hands and always has to be doing something. So that's all it boiled down to, the trumpet. And he's like, you know, look on the back of the nylon curtain. He's got the coffee cup, glass houses. He's holding the rock. Yeah, I mean, I think other than 52nd Street, our top albums are are pretty close there. I think I, I ranked 52nd Street significantly lower. Yeah, I think we both did there. So we also have a handful of comments from Facebook. Paul Manning, who chimed in, and he writes that his favorite is Songs in the Attic, followed by 52nd Street. 
So here's another 52nd Street that's up there. Yeah. And then we had Joey Buchholz. This will be fun. My three favorites are Glass Houses, River of Dreams, and An Innocent Man. Interesting. We both had River of Dreams on the lower end of the spectrum, I believe. That's what makes this fun to hear all the contrasting uh, opinions for sure. And you know, I think part of it too, maybe when people came online, if some people, you know, they really identified with that album, they're going to have a fonder memory of the artwork and things of that nature. Look, I mean, Glass Houses was my album, so that's at the top of my list for a myriad of reasons, but I think that's part of it as well. So it's it's certainly fascinating to see what people gravitate toward. Yeah. And then we had a comment also on the uh, Completely Retold Facebook group where we posted about the episode. We had Jeff Fisher who wrote in. He says, fun podcast, guys. Pretty much agree with your list and assessments. I put the album covers into three categories. One, brilliant. Two, I get it. Nice try. <laughs> Not bad, but come on. This should be so much better than this. And three, WTF. <laughs> man, this so, guy does not pull punches. <laughs> no, you're not kidding, man. In his number one category, he's got The Stranger, Glass Houses, Songs in the Attic, and The Nylon Curtain. His okay. number two category, Street Life Serenade, Turnstiles, 52nd Street, An Innocent Man, Old Spring Harbor, Stormfront, and Fantasies and Delusions. And the number three, that's the WTF Camp. <laughs> right. He's got Piano Man, River of Dreams, Concert, and The Bridge. And he says, this has no bearing on my favorite musical content. This is just pure artwork covers and concepts. Look, you know there are issues when the back covers or inner sleeves are better than the front covers, which I think is true with many of the LPs. Well, okay, well, I guess our, our next list is going to have to be back covers. Then. <laughs> That's a real Honestly, cop that out, would huh? be an interesting one to do. I guess Piano Man is really the only one that's just uh, words on the back. Uh, no, no, no. It has the uh, the other pic- the other photo on it. Yeah, it's like the inverse of it. Ah, we'll do that at the but, beginning of 2023. Yeah, let's bookmark it because I think that'd be fun because those all certainly have some unique things. As far as inner sleeves, you know, aside from Piano Man, he really didn't start having custom inner sleeves until Turnstiles. And, you know, we joked earlier with our Edward O'Dowd conversation how... Uh, you know how it was really hard to read the lyrics on the original and how he worked to keep it pretty faithful to that. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting one. And, you know, he certainly had some good ones uh, in the uh, late 70s into the 80s in the inner sleeves as well, like Glass Houses. That's a classic of the band. You know, I got so many on cassette at first and, you know, it took years later, you would discover it CD by CD or LP by LP, and you would get introduced to all these other photos you never knew existed. Yeah, and it, it really kind of helps tell the picture a little more because a lot of the times the cassettes just just had the front cover and that was it. Good stuff, man. Uh, great diversity of, of, of opinions on this. Give us a little more to chat about. Keep those uh, emails coming. Keep those Facebook comments coming. We love everyone. We read them all. We'll get a little better about responding, but we'll certainly keep reading them here. So what do you say we jump into this Kieran Dry gigs? So tell us who's on this concert in the first place. Yeah, and as we talked about, this is quite a hybrid of new, old, and temporary musicians right. on this lineup. So obviously we have Billy Joel on vocals, piano, and guitar. You have Liberty DeVito, drums and percussion. Dave LeBolt on keyboards and vocals. Skylar Deal on bass. John McCurry on guitar. And if that name sounds familiar at all in the Billy Joel universe, he is also credited as one of the guitar players on Getting Closer on the Bridge album. He's a well-seasoned guitar player, has played with a mm. lot of people, but that was his connection to Billy Joel just two years prior. And then we had Peter Hewlett on guitar and vocals. Now, this is interesting because Peter Hewlett did the Bridge tour just singing background vocals. Uh, I had no idea that he also was a guitar player because he played rhythm guitar on this gig. And then you also had Eric Bazilian from the Hooters on saxophone. What I find really unique about this lineup is that the guitar player situation really wasn't settled yet. Dave LeBolt had yet to be replaced. However, Doug's permanent replacement in Skylar Deal was already in the band. Yeah, between Dave LeBolt and Peter Hewlett, they were just, uh, they were holdovers. Yeah, just for this gig, essentially, because by Stormfront, Crystal had joined the band and she was pretty much handling anything Peter was singing. 
Yeah, Jeff Jacobs joined the band for the Stormfront tour. I mean, it makes sense if he's doing just one show this year, he's just going to grab the guys he's played with recently. Yeah. The most apparent thing to me was just how 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 much smoother this show was. And I mean that in the in the musical sense. You know, I talk a lot about for lack of a better word, I usually talk about how Liberty has a very angular feel to how he plays. He doesn't float along the rhythm uh like maybe some West Coast drummers are going to. He gives you a downbeat but he's just always he's always sort of playing in the cracks. If you listen in the best way, he teeters on being late and missing hits, but he doesn't. He really plays like the milliseconds. He really plays the space between the notes a lot. But on this one, even he seems to be just coasting in, in a good way. Like I don't mean to say it like, like they were phoning it in, but it just has a, a real smoother feel overall. And, and we really don't hear that again until like 12 Gardens Live. Yeah, and I almost wonder if part of it, albeit maybe subliminal, was the fact that it was not the normal band, not the band that he had been playing with the last 10, 15 years. So it was maybe just more of a, in his head, like, let me just try to help keep it together. You know, Russell and Doug and David Brown and all those guys knew how to play with Liberty, knew where he pushed and pulled and all of that, and where he floated around the beat. While Liberty did that, it was still really tight because those guys really knew how to play together. Now you take all those guys out of it, it's in danger of being a train wreck unless things kind of get smooth and stable for a little bit. You know, is it also you don't have Doug locking in the same way, but very specifically, you know, to your point, but also just the fact that, you know, Doug was the other half of that rhythmic dynamic or that rhythmic approach. I, I have this feeling and I have nothing to base it on, but you know, sometimes you, you sometimes you play differently when the situation's very different. You almost wonder if this felt like being for a moment it felt like he was in a in a show band and not like the real rock and roll band. You know, like again, not that they were phoning this in, but you know, the band hadn't played in over a year. Um, you got a whole bunch of new people and they just jet over, do one show, you know, sometimes you just, you just take a different approach, you know, just yeah. because of the situation is so different. It affects how you play. Yeah, that's true. And of course, you know, this doesn't all sit on Liberty. I think just, well, because my, the extent of, of me understanding music theory stops and starts with the drums for the most part, it's certainly what I'm going to key into the most, but that's just where it rests. The whole groove overall was different. Yeah. It felt really different. And <clears throat> What's really interesting is I think because of the dynamic of who played with him, you know, you had Skylar Deal, who was some of the fresh blood and the fresh energy that would come with Stormfront. But then this was in a lot of ways, very much like the bridge tour with the way the songs were arranged and performed and, you know, a lot of the keyboard stuff and everything. So it really felt like a hybrid of Stormfront and the bridge but yeah. no Stormfront material, obviously, because that hadn't come out yet and been recorded. But it was really fascinating. And one thing I really keyed into as well, too, is maybe because I was so used to the bridge to Russia stuff, all the Russian shows, where Billy was just audibly and visibly tired. And, right. you know, the band was starting to fray and all those dynamics and all those things were happening. Billy felt really refreshed here into my to my ears. You know, the, the last component to this is that it was this set comes in the middle of a festival. So, you know, the band doesn't have to go from zero to sixty. They they pretty much they're starting at forty and they're they're hitting triple digits, you know. I think right. that plays into the performance as well. Like you're already you're just coming in midstream. The crowd's already amped up. You've been hearing music all day. You're just you're just ready to go and it's more of a bang it out situation than a lot of the dramatic ups and downs of, of your average Billy Joel concert. The way I looked at this was for the most part, I really enjoyed it because it's so rare to hear a Billy Joel concert sound like this. Toward the end, I, I, I feel like there's a lot lost in just because you weren't there. Like you could, you know, it really becomes an artifact towards the end, but you know, it makes you appreciate when they resequence a live album uh, when when they when they punch it up a little or whatever else they do with it, because you know towards the end it's like wow it's sounding great and the crowd is super into it and I'm sure I would be too but the last leg of actual Billy songs because he does a couple covers at the end 
just hearing it on a on a semi decent bootleg is cool, but I don't need to go back to them. I'd probably listen to the beginning and the end of this again, personally. I think had it not been for the unique transition period of the band, to me that was the the big interesting thing there and how these musicians treated this set and these songs which only happened this one time so that to right. me made it super unique and that's mostly what i was trying to key into throughout the show because that to me was the most interesting component of uh this uh show that yeah. was shorter than a typical billy joel show as well because it was a festival yeah only six well only 15 songs actually as opposed to we're used to 22, 23, somewhere around there. And so those 15 songs are Matter of Trust, Pressure, Miami 2017, Honesty, The Stranger, An Innocent Man, Big Man on Mulberry Street, Only the Good Die Young, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, You May Be Right, Big Shot, My Life, Keeping the Faith, and then our two covers, Back in the USSR, and I Saw Her Standing There. No Piano Man. No. What a relief man- that must have been. <laughs> And this was the tour where he was admitting that fairly often. I think this was really around the time where he was getting pretty burnt out on this song. And just the way you are, I think, as well. I think those two left set lists more frequently back in 87 and 88 here. Yeah, which makes Keeping the Faith an interesting finale, you know, before the encore. Yeah, it does. So let's jump in. Here we go. Now, Matter of Trust. Is that the same intro pretty much as he does on Yankee Stadium? Yeah, it, it was pretty similar. Just starting in with the groove and the bass and some guitar noodling. And it's kind of a hybrid of Yankee Stadium and Russia, really. Now, this version, the first thing I notice is, is this version is a little faster. And I got to say, that really did it for me. This song improves a lot when you take up the BPMs even just by a few ticks. I kind of always like this one. Sometimes I'm kind of not in the mood or at least... It's not one I'll be an apologetic for. Just giving it a little extra speed does wonders for it. Yeah, I've always been a fan of this song myself, and it is a very middle-of-the-road, mid-tempo song. And in a live scenario, it really can run in danger of being just really plotty and boring. So I, I think you're right. Kicking it up just a couple notches really helps it move along at a nice, nice pace. There's a lot of extra kick. Skyler's playing a little funkier, obviously, than Doug would. And I think that drives Liberty, too. We get a little more skip beat out of out of him. He's not, like, bringing down a hammer to Thor as much. Yeah, but we have a little 16th note action on the bass drum. Um, you know, all that really elevates this song. I mean, this was, like, just a minute or so into this boot. And I was like, ooh, this is going to be a good one. Now I'm excited to hear the rest of this. Now, I got one yeah. more thing. I think they clam at the beginning. I think they go around an extra time if you listen to it. Being that it's like a, a, a pickup band, somebody yeah. didn't get a memo <laughs> and it goes around an extra time. <laughs> just because, like, there doesn't seem to be a reason for it. There's no build to it. It's just an odd progression. Yeah. An odd extra yeah. progression, I should say. Even though it was different guitar players, the sounds were very much the bridge era, like the bridge tour era. And Liberty's drums sounded straight out of the bridge tour as well. That tour had a very unique drum sound. Now, I'm curious, though, too, what the gear situation was, though. This was certainly a one-off gig. Now, what's quite common, these one-off gigs, is it's, it's going to be largely backlined. Now, by right. this point, like Liberty had been with Tom and Drums for a decade, or almost a decade, and so they, you know, they've got a technical rider, so he's going to get exactly what he wants. And, you know, they're all going to get what they want. And I wonder if it was amps and stuff were were backlined. You know, they just brought guitars and sequencers and things like that. There's a good chance Liberty was playing a different drum kit than he's used to, for sure. They probably had like one for, they they could have had one for a number of the acts. Yeah, or or it's even possible that it was a Tama drum kit that they got from Tama for the gig. Man, I'll tell you, speaking as a drummer who's had to play on a lot of different kits, that's also going to affect how you play. You put somebody in front of a different drum kit and everything changes. Oh, 100%. I tell you, prime example, go watch Billy Joel's Farm Aid. Oh, yeah. It's 1985, (laughs) where I'm pretty positive he's playing Kenny Aronoff's kit. Yeah, yeah, because of the way the toms look on it. Yeah, it's really funky. And it's, I mean, because that was Kenny's setup for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it, it Liberty looked really off behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He looked like he was just going to beat the hell out of him just out of spite. 
Oh, they looked like they were about to go down any second. And it's yeah. funny, Kenny Arn- Kenny's a heavy hitter, too. He is, but it yeah. just looked like Liberty was about to destroy those drums. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the one like John Mellicamp looks back at him and he's like, Jesus. Yeah, during the uh, the jam, I think, yeah. <laughs> so from there, we go into Pressure, which makes a really nice one-two punch for the intro. And, you know, I thought so, too. Yeah, and, and not a typical opener for Billy here, Matter of Trust and Pressure. You get some nice vamping at the beginning. Uh, I wonder if Billy is moving to a different keyboard, and that's why. Um, yeah, no, I remember when I saw him at the Nassau Coliseum on the River of Dreams store that he would run to a keyboard from the piano for this song and sort of mm-hmm. back and forth. So, uh, you know, it makes me wonder if there's a little extra at the beginning to give him time to, to switch instruments. Well, also, he's probably playing guitar on Matter of Trust, right? So he's got to take off the guitar and, and move over yep. because... There's a there's hardly any transition between the two. It goes right into it. You, you'll notice that too in Live from Long Island. He wasn't playing guitar then, but he may have been at the piano. Liberty kicked right into it, and I don't think he had that far to go to get to the CP80 on Live from Long Island. But he took his time because Liberty and Doug just kept that groove going until he was in position, and then he kind of signaled when to go to the next section. First of all, the, the keys sound really 80s on this one. The synths. Which is a shame because Pressure is, is sort of one of my favorite synthesizer sounds that he comes up with, mostly because it's it's layered and it's not usually what he does. And it didn't right. sound very 80s originally. If you listen again, Live from Wild Island, what he and Dave LaVolt were doing, they had the sound then. But whenever they transitioned to the sequencers and things for the Ridge Tour, they didn't quite nail it sound-wise. My first note is that the, it's another smoother groove, and as a result, I felt like they were slightly disaffected vocals. But I take that back sort of halfway through the song. Billy, in this case, is doing what I call his horror movie vocal, which I haven't talked about before. You know, I've done Hapless Billy, I've done Schlub Billy, I've done Tough Guy Billy. Horror movie Billy is when he does like his sort of Vincent Price words, whoa, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it really yep. comes out full form on this one. You don't hear it that much on record, I don't think. He kind of does it a little more when he's going over the top in concert. Probably yeah. works a little better there. And it's a great song to do it on because it's just such a angsty song, you know, and it's a, it's an interesting right. way to, to portray it's that. It's haunting in a way, yeah. Yes, yes. So the smoothness I, I felt mostly worked, but... It didn't work on the bridges. That's where the, this smoothness thing started to come apart just a little for me because it wasn't, you want it to slow down a little when you hit, you know, those breaks and those bridges, you know, uh, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And then it's the uh, keyboard solo after that. The album version, the tempo is all over the place. If you ever put pressure on repeat, you'll you'll realize how much faster they are at the end of this one than they, than they started out at. So you lose yeah. that here. He really just kind of smoothed all the way through it. Sometimes in the 80s, though, this song tended to be, like, super fast. Yeah. To your point, how you mentioned that on the album version, the tempo does ramp up as the song goes. But when Liberty would start it where they would end it, sometimes it would just get away from them a little bit. Especially with those nice fast fills that Liberty does, sometimes it just feels a little too frantic towards the end if if they're starting the song too hot. Yeah, so it's a a good tempo. Just, you know, I would have loved if if they pulled back just a little on those bridges, but maybe that's a lot to ask for a pickup band. You know, I I feel like I'm no. saying that disparagingly, but I'm not. It's just what it is. You know, you don't have that telepathy going on yet. I think they all knew this was a one-time gig. I'm pretty sure they all knew the situation. Everyone's goal was just to do, get through the gig and do well. Right. And so that was the focus. And, you know, like you said, it's you're not going to get the telepathy, the closeness that the previous band and the later band would, would go on to have. So the other thing we, we start seeing on this song, however, so, you know, having said that, that crops up a lot, is Billy playing a lot with the melodies. You know, obviously, by now, we're used to a couple things he does pretty regularly in concert where, you know, he diverges from the melodies on the original albums. But we see a lot. I feel like we see a lot of it here. I feel like he's really playing with it and having some fun with different people at the yeah. helm. Overall, Pressure's a song he does that with a lot. Coming out of that, we're going into Miami 2017. And the intro is similar, not exact, but similar to what they were doing in the early 80s. You know, think thinking to the songs in the attic, Siren and keyboard stuff they had going on. It wasn't very similar, 
However, this feels like the last time that that was used. Because by Stormfront, he was just going right into it. Yeah, it's 80s up a little too uh, with the synth at the beginning and also the guitar kind of, the way the guitar slides in, like that's a kind of a hair metal move. It works, but I see you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's another kind of clam. I think he hesitates a little. Right after I saw the Empire State lay low, like, you know, his, his piano playing is, is for a moment not as smooth as, as it should be. I know, I noticed that as well, yeah. What a, what a couple of jerks we are. Like, we're going we're gonna to nitpick down to like, oh, there's like two seconds in which you're not playing flawlessly, <laughs> and we're going to point it out. <laughs> but I also, at the very same time, will say this. This was the first song of the night where I noticed in Billy's voice and his vocal that he sounded rested and refreshed. Like, this was a really good vocal performance out of him. The piano part at the beginning, at least, feels a little stripped down, which I think is because it was such a big amphitheater. That's sort of a pet theory of mine. You know, just a, a hall that big means you can leave out a couple notes for better effect because, you, you know, you don't want too much echoing off the rear wall of the place. Yeah, that's true. I do like a lot when they give up the synth and they go to an organ sound for the rest of it. But I don't like that it's on the brakes. Said the Queens could say they blew the Bronx away, those parts. I really wish it had, had like dropped out there and like went heavy yeah. guitar for contrast. But again, you know, it's what you're going to get in a situation like this. It makes me think, too, that, you know, this, this, which, you know, I don't even know if Dave LeBolt knew it at the time, but this was his last show with Billy. Dave LeBolt was the first keyboard player after Richie left in 1981. And, you know, he spent six to seven years with Billy and really freed Billy up a lot and really was the architect behind digital effects and samplers and the keyboard, all the different keyboard sounds. And, you know, he was an unsung and often in the shadows part of the band, but he really added a lot to this Billy Joel band in the 80s. And mm. it's wild to see this last performance before he would uh, depart the band. So next we have Honesty. You know, originally I thought he was going from song to song so quickly because there was a language barrier. Like, what are you going to say? But yeah, he does address the audience here. He throws in a little Japanese here and there. I think just basically thank you. But he does, you know, speak in English here. And when he says 52nd Street, well, he gets a huge response. People knew the name of that record. And that was, I mean, Sony Japan, that was the first compact disc was 52nd Street. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah, that that's what a, I figured. Yeah. That that was such a huge record over there. The big thing to notice here is the drums come right in. Again, I'm going to attribute that to it being a hyped up crowd in an arena. You know, you, yeah. you don't have a lot of room for bringing it down bringing for too down. long. In fact, I'm, I mean, it's got to be because 52nd Street was big in Japan that Honesty is even in this set. And Honesty was a big single there. Obviously makes sense because, I mean... Yeah. You know, and, and another reason too, you had mentioned him like not talking much between songs, and I think part of it too is with it being a condensed time frame. That's true. You know, he's playing a shorter show. He's probably not going to do as much banter, so he can you know play one more song. So here vocally, he's doing a lot of backphrasing. He's he's sort of singing behind the beat in a lot of places, kind of a jazzy move. I'm not a huge fan of the synthesizers on this one. They didn't fit great, but. Yeah, you gotta do what you gotta do no. in the 80s, man. Yeah, they really hadn't, you know, nailed, like, really good strings yet. Because really, that's what's on the record, is uh, right. very beautiful strings. Um, and it just, it didn't quite come across this way. Yeah, in the 80s were a time when you try to replicate strings instead of maybe going to an organ or just going with a different sound. And coming out of honesty, we're going into The Stranger. Which, I tell you what, man, every time I hear this... I just think, why doesn't he play this more live? This song is just such a great live song. I just love the build up into it and just the energy of it. And I tell you what, this one really highlighted Skyler on bass here. And it was really interesting to hear his interpretation of this song. He didn't play it that much with Billy. I don't recall it being in the set that much on the Stormfront tour. Skyler definitely shines on this one. It's so strange. It's 1988. And he says, uh, this came out 11 years ago. Feels like a lifetime ago, you know? <laughs> I mean, probably because you know. and I came online between this and The Stranger. So The Stranger was some weird nether region of the past, you know? <laughs> right. And yeah, to put it in context, 11 years ago from now is 2011. 
Uh, we're getting old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's got a punchy vocal rhythm going on here. We get a little more of that horror Billy vibe. A little more Vincent yep. Price going on. And really nice backing vocals on this one, too. I'm assuming that's Peter Hewlett again. That is certainly Peter Hewlett. I commented on that on my notes as well. Really nice backing vocals. I mean, gosh, he has such an insanely high voice. I mean, he can get low, too, if he needs to, but he really hits those top end, those high notes like nothing. It's wild. I checked the liner notes. I'm like, is that is that Crystal? Does he have another female vocalist? Because, it, you know, because of how high it went. Yeah. And I always chuckled uh, on the Russian album. His, you know, Peter was on the bridge tour. Uh, after Uptown Girl, Billy says, I'd like to introduce the man who sang all the high notes on that song, Peter Hewlett. Now we get a super long introduction into An Innocent Man. Uh, the audience yep. seems to be really into it. Billy says at one point, I have a hole in my pants. And I'm trying to think it, of <laughs> what this is possibly referencing. Because I doubt his pants actually have a hole in them. But they could, I guess. It's possible because he's standing by this point. Yeah. So I don't know if in getting up and standing, he moved a certain way and <laughs> tore a hole right. somewhere. or I'm not sure what was going on there. But I noticed he uh, he mentioned that too. And I almost feel like he was like joking it back to Liberty. Like, you know, they just have the... They would always just ba- banter back and forth. I, I almost feel like he was talking to him. <laughs> yeah, it didn't sound quite on the mic. It sounded like it was maybe a little off mic. Yeah. And I noticed on this one, it, it felt like it started a little fast, but then it settled in nicely. But this is one where that, that smoothness didn't really do it for me. It was just, you know, you need you need some lift to this one. It needs to be it needs to go up and down. Otherwise it's a it's a pretty long haul. I didn't note the line, but did you catch Billy flubbing a line in this one? Yes, I have that lyric flub on last verse. Peter Hewlett again on the backing vocals here, hitting those crazy, crazy high notes. Side note, I wonder if, like, you know, Brian Ruggles is along on this one or if they had to use a house engineer. Based on what Liberty's drums sound like, I think it was Brian. Just because I'm used to hearing it later on, and maybe he modified it or matched with Crystal a little more, but... You can really hear the handoff on the note. You know, I am, and then to Billy for an innocent man. Yeah, and go back and listen to the one on the Russian album. It's pretty similar. Oh, okay. It's a very distinct, like, entrance on Peter Hewlett's part and back into Billy. It's like very, you know what I mean? Now we're getting to Big Man on Mulberry Street, where Billy is once again addressing the crowd. And I have to say, it sounds a little like when you're talking to somebody that speaks a different language and you think that if you talk louder, somehow they'll understand you. Special guest uh, play with us on this song. This is called Big Man on Mulberry Streets. I say it as a joke because he's on stage, he's probably amped up, but it sounded like he was being like, This is a song. Yeah, it was a little strange for sure. <laughs> We've seen him adopt accents. Like there was, um, I think it was like one of the master classes in Germany. He's got this weird accent to him, yeah. you know, and because he just tends to do that accidentally i think you know let's start picking up the accent wherever he is to a certain yep. degree or or it will at least modify his like you know when he did it in germany he didn't sound german but there was definitely something different about the way he was talking right so this is super smooth again i think it worked a little better this time and again this was a holdover of the bridge tour that really didn't make its way back very often after that and with those Horn stabs from Dave LeBolt on the keyboard. That is very 80s sounding. And, you know, it, again, it just sounded just like the bridge tour to me. When you have to do uh, synths instead of horns, it's, that's peak 80s right there. And again, this is the song, much like he did a lot of times on the bridge tour. This is where he does the band introductions. Again, you know, being so used to the solid lineups that he's had over the years, to hear him introduce the band and it being so different, but it almost felt like one from the bridge tour. I don't know. It just, it was just very strange to me to hear the band introduction and to like, you know, be reminded that it's a very different lineup. Right. Yeah. Such a combination of, of players, you know, you Liberty, the longtime guy, Peter and David LeBolt, who were, you know, fairly new, but not to be there long. And then Skylar deal, who was like the future, you know, so to speak. Dave LeBolt joined in 82. So he was, um, 
five years, five to six years in. Hewlett joined in 84, 83, 84. So he did the bridge in An Innocent Man. And then, like you said, Skyler was the, the one new guy for this show that would go on to do Stormfront. So then we get Only the Good Die Young. At first, I thought this was early in the set, but then I realized we're about halfway through. This kicks off, you know, the usual Billy party block for sure. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it just felt like a little something missing. This was the first one where you feel like you're looking in the window at a party. Yeah. There's nothing special about it, but in the moment, it must have been great. The band just grooving, everybody's up and dancing. Maybe part of it, too, is on the bridge tour in general, the acoustic guitars seemed pretty low in the mix on this song. It was like the bass and the drums driving it instead okay. of the the jangy jangy of the acoustic guitar. And I, I don't know, I miss that. I, I really like the acoustic guitars on this song. It's not a song that you need to see on a live album, really, because it is a really in-the-moment thing. When I listened to this, I really thought right back to Live from Long Island, and you know the camaraderie that was on stage was, to me, palpable during this song. And, and then it, then you really miss it when it's just not there this time around. Having the visual component that that version made a big difference. Yeah, there's a couple of times, I think they come a little later where the crowd clearly is cheering for something visual happening on stage that we have no idea what it is. And again, you know, as typical, I'm sure Billy plays the intro, grabs a wireless mic, and then starts running around. I'm sure he's engaging with the crowd, doing funny stuff, climbing around, jumping around. And yeah, you could definitely hear the audience responding to whatever it is he's doing. And this is the first song, too, that really featured Eric on saxophone prominently. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. All the saxophone songs kind of come up now. Yeah. Well, I can't remember, but is it possible he wasn't on stage yet? I mean, Miami has sax. Oh, that's true. But that's really it. Well, it's really it, but you have oh, to remember, Mulberry, too. Yeah. Which is right before this. Yeah, and what's funny about these a lot of these songs, especially the ones here, is that they're all mostly like eight-bar breaks on the saxophone. So, like, you know, if you're even passingly familiar with this song, you can read it off a sheet. You could sight-read it, you know, and just, just get right. away with it. I was talking about that, that Farm Aid show from 85. Mm -hmm. It was the entire band except for Mark Rivera. He wasn't there for that either. But filling in was Charlie DeShant from Hall & Oates. And so it was, like, giving a totally different flavor. But Charlie, I think, had, a, had it a little bit closer than uh, Eric did here. Uh, on his parts and and what's funny is Charlie and Liberty ended up having a band together years after that right but back to this show yeah now we're in a still rock and roll to me and you know maybe I could have listened to this a few more times and figured it out but is Liberty adding extra bass hits or is that just echo I think it's a little echo I was mostly hearing the shuffle but he's usually I mean on the record at least he's four on the floor right it's four on the floor, and, and it's Doug hitting the two notes. Or is it they both doing it? Liberty's kick drum pattern, the song starts out with four. Dun, dun, dun. And then it's shuffle on the kick drum. In the verse. Wait. Yeah. Where is Oh, okay. But I'm talking about just the straight intro. So, all right. So maybe he was shuffling at the beginning. Yeah. So the studio version starts out with just the first bar is the only time Liberty is just doing quarter notes. And then cool. he goes right into the shuffle. So to make a point of that, I've been playing that wrong. We're glad we had this conversation, sir. <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah, you know, this one gets a little weird. There's some weird atonal piano stuff happening in the beginning. You wonder if he's just like dramatically slapping around on the piano, or if that was some sort of avant-garde thing he just decided to go with at the moment. And his vocals come off uh, a little show tunesy to me in this one. Not in a bad way, just noticeable, you know. A little less yeah. Elvis, a little more maybe Wayne Newton or something, you know. <laughs> he's he's kind of <laughs> yeah. really crooning it. Yeah, I got that too. <laughs> you know, Eric Bazilian's got that sax solo definitely really smooth, a lot smoother than any other we've heard, you know, to your point earlier. And again, he's going to stick around for the next song, which is You May Be Right. Really nice guitar work on this one because it's a very guitar-forward song. And, you know, historically, Russell and David Brown played well against each other and understated on this version, but I, I thought the guitar work was nice. I think there was a false start. Something wonky yes. kind of happens at the beginning. Liberty goes to start it, and then the glass shatters. Something weird. I just went back and listened. He he does two snare hits, and then the and he stops, and then the glass breaks, and then he does four snare hits. Because typically live, it's glass break, four snare hits, in. 
he jumped the gun on the glass shattering, I think. I had some strong backing vocals on this one, which I really thought gave it a lift. Said especially, too, because on this one, Billy's a little winded because he's clearly running around the stage on this one, you know, being yeah. much more animated. So having the background vocal support, I think, is a nice help. I thought it was funny that the guitar solo is different, but the sax solo is the same. I always think of those two together. So it's when one of them's different, it throws you. I wonder who's playing the harmonica at the end here. I figured Peter Hewlett. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And then from there, we got a huge response for the opening of Big Shot. But the keys were really weak at the beginning. I did not like the keyboard intro. I think the reason is, is the dynamic of the mix was off. Because uh, I noticed that, too, the, the keyboards were really loud and the guitars were really low in the beginning. It should be the other way around. The guitar should drive the front of the song. Yeah. And I think that's what made it kind of sound funky. Energy was pretty fun overall. This song always gets the energy up. This is the one, though, where I did make my note that it makes you appreciate concert records that are resequenced and punched up a little. Just because there's no reason, except for, like, us, to listen to a performance like this because, it, you know, it you, you lose out not being there, you know. Right. Um, but, it, yeah. Yeah, but it was definitely good. I'm sure in the moment it was amazing. And there's a flub at the end of this one, too. Oh, I know. <laughs> so they, they, they sort of do like a an upward progression or whatever, like, you know, and it goes up a little. Yeah. And he says big shot when it goes up, which is an odd place to put it. You would usually just put it right at the end. Oh, you're gonna right. Do it. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe he was doing it on purpose there. Maybe it's just because I've never really noticed it there before, nor have I ever played it like that. But it sounded like right. he actually jumped. <laughs> you know, because then they do the riff. Yeah, yeah, maybe. it's Yeah, it's hard to say if it was intentional or not, but he usually didn't place it there. Bill is going to kick our ass for this one. We're just pointing out all his, <laughs> all his flaws and foibles. So coming out of Big Shot, we're going into my life. And I tell you what, it just felt so strange to hear it this deep in the set. Yeah, I was thinking that too, because it's usually right towards the beginning, if not the opener. A lot of times it's the number two slot. He does, he does like some Scottish steps at the beginning of this, which I, I, I thought was funny. It's like, it's like something you hear in, um, in like hip hop all the time. Like, did it, did it, did it, did it. Like that, that sort of vocal rhythm. And he does that for a moment here. Overall, the song just felt fresh. It doesn't always. Sometimes it feels a little stale and a little underwhelming, but it just had a good feel during this version. The band was uh, loosened up by now, uh, and so we got a nice version that was a little more hard-hitting, but definitely not stilted at all. Uh, it sounded to me like Skylar on bass was driving a lot of that. I also really dug the backing vocals on this one. How about this take on Keeping the Faith? Did you ever have Liberty's drum book off the record? No. Um, where it's like 11 Billy Joel songs where he teaches you how to play them. One of them is Keeping the Faith. Now he goes through the album version, which is... Boom, ga, boom, ga, ga, boom. You know, it's yeah, pretty straightforward like that. And then, so after he goes through the album version, and he goes, now on the bridge tour, Keeping the Faith developed into something like this. And he plays this groove. Okay. And which is a very different feel. Oh, yeah. On the bridge tour, Keeping the Faith developed into something like this. One, two, three, four. I had a feeling that they were actually trying to avoid Russell's riff. Unless but they did it like this it on the there. bridge as well. Yeah, but I mean, just just in the sense that it was downplayed. The drums were brought up and the guitars were toned back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's possible because this was, I mean, granted, this was Cleanup Woman, <laughs> essentially. But 
Russell's guitar work is really what drove the song originally. Yeah, that drum groove, though, my note was uh, only Lib can play funk that heavy. You know, like I funk know. usually takes a lighter touch. This is another great example of, of, of how unique his drumming is. You don't think about it that much, but... Yeah, he's playing a funky groove and you're headbanging, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we get some weird, like, vocal flights of fancy on the Still Look Tough Anyway. Found you could dance and yeah. Still Look Tough Anyway. <laughs> so he starts off yeah. all fey about it. And then he's like, then he like kind of slips into a Dylan impression for Bob Dylan impression for just a moment. If memory serves with how they would play it live, I believe it's Billy who's on the keyboard and LeBolt is playing the organ, like as far as sounds go. There's actually some nice interplay between the two of them on this song too, which I don't remember always hearing live. So that ends the main set here. Again, no piano man, no scenes from an Italian restaurant, no Captain Jack. So like none of the none of the cornerstones are here. I mean, Captain Jack doesn't always get played, but at least Piano Man are scenes. And we didn't start the fire, and River of Dreams hadn't been written yet. <laughs> exactly. So then we get a pair of Beatles covers. Now, what I have to say is this: anytime I've done a, a set of Billy Joel, we used to do it like in bars, which was like not the best venue for it because you can't do like three hours of Billy Joel on the floor of a pub. You know, I mean, we did, <laughs> but you know, it's it <laughs> tough after a while. So we used to add in, especially we used to add in a couple Beatles covers. And man, it's like running with the weights off. Like, you know, because like Billy's, it's a lot of heavy lifting that goes on. It's very tightly orchestrated. The piano player is, you know, really doing a lot of work. Everybody's got to be real tight. And then you just get to these old rock and roll songs and you just, you just take off. And you really feel that here too. Every time he starts doing Beatles songs, it's just so relaxed. And yeah, Billy loves playing covers and loves the Beatles. So yeah, anytime this happens, you could just feel like he's just having a blast. Like he's outside of the show now. He's already at the bar where he's like behind the Hammond organ again, you know, just. (laughs) Exactly. This is the only time that this song was performed where it was his current single. It's right from, from the Russia tour. This was the one single from the album. This is the only time it got played really so he's actually playing a current Billy Joel single when he's covering this song. <laughs> he brings out uh, Boz Skaggs comes out for this one. You know, the funny thing, too, listening to Back in the USSR here, I'm so used to the Russian version, and it's very close because, I mean, they're only a year apart. I, like, expected to hear Billy yell, take it away, Russ, before the guitar <laughs> solo. Because, like, I'm ingrained to that version, and I'm like, oh, Russell's not there anymore. <laughs> And then we close out with one more Beatles cover. I saw her standing there. Another fun romp. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like they pretty much bring everybody up. We'll bring out some friends of ours. We got Boss Gags again. What this kind of reminded me of is those Rock and Roll Hall of Fame jams. They would be like Billy Joel and Eric Clapton and Paul Schaefer and all these, everyone just on stage jamming covers. I like that analogy. And I love that he's ending his set with a cover. That's just such a, a cool thing to do. I don't know. It's a cool thing to do. It's so relaxed. You can tell he's having fun with it. Probably so much easier for the rest of the band too. They get to relax a little as well. And that wraps up this show. An unusual curio in the in the billy joel uh, live canon and if you want to find it now it's it was just uploaded to youtube january 19th of 22 look up billy joel live at tokyo dome july 24th 1988 kieran dry gigs k-i-r-i-n the person who uploaded is called activer i guess music it's like active with an r at the end so thank you whoever you were there sir uh we appreciate your contribution yeah and just amazing that this surfaced after all these years and in looking at this youtube channel it's another billy joel channel essentially there's a couple like fairly recent billy joel bootleg youtube channels that have been up recently that i think are going to provide a nice source for other episodes like this check it out give this a listen get back to us let us know your thoughts uh what are your highlights from this one what do you think didn't work What do you think of the different band on this one? Do you like the way it sounds? Does it sound a little uncanny valley to you? Is it just not working at all? Or is it, does it seem refreshing? You know, just, just to hear everything a little differently. You know, for my money, it felt like 
very much the transition. And, you know, it's funny, we, we talk about that so often, how so many things are transition points in Billy's career. But as far as the live setting goes, this and the Great American Music Hall 1975 so far seem to be the two biggest transition points of Billy's live career that have been documented. And this is such a fascinating listen. You know, unfortunately, the audio quality is not amazing because it's it's an audience recording, but really interesting to hear where this band was at and where the changes were happening at, in 1988. So right. we would definitely love to hear what you think of it. Yeah, let us know. Shoot us an email, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Just look us up at Glass Houses, a Billy Joe podcast. Yeah, your comments, your messages, your emails, everything are so great. We love hearing your stories and your thoughts. We're not always great about responding in a timely manner, but we're always going to try to improve on that. And you never know, you just may hear one of your comments or emails read on the show here. So keep them coming and we'll keep incorporating some uh, great listener anecdotes. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and you haven't already, and I don't know how you couldn't have because I say this every time, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Every five-star rating and positive review tells the almighty algorithm that we're doing a good job and it should put us in front of more people. So that makes it a fast, easy, and free way for you to help us build our community. So thanks again for everything. We are well into year two now. No, we're not. This is year three. Good Lord. Do you believe that? Year three. It's so much fun that I've lost track of time. But here we are into year three, and we can't thank you all enough for everything. You helped drive the show. And we have such a great time doing this. So thanks again. And we will see you soon. See you soon. Thanks a lot.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 